One of the coolest things uh, about hearing their story was I first heard their story in my backyard. We had a number of young marrieds just hanging out one summer evening, and we're sitting around our table talking, and they're sharing their story. And I love Felicia talked about this, that as they made that commitment uh, that on their wedding night... Uh, it felt as if it was the first time and filled with such meaning and significance and intimacy. And, and I think when we're talking about relationships, when we're talking about love, when we're talking about sex, and we addressed this the first week, that so oftentimes when we think about God and when we think about the church, our picture is that, that God is anti-fun, he's anti-sex, that he's somehow against it, and that there is this fence keeping us from fun. You know, and the grass is always greener on the other side. And yet, and yet that couldn't be further from the truth. When you explore God's word and you explore his heart behind why he says what he says. That even in the reality of sexuality, he's not anti-sex. He, he is so pro and so for, he designed it. Now think about this. If I design something, there's a way in which it's supposed to operate that it functions at its best. And as the designer, I know how it's supposed to function at its very best. And so why would we not take our cues from the designer, from the creator who says, no, 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 I made you this way, I made you like this, and I want it to be the very best ever. Um, this morning, we're talking about what I'm calling the forbidden fruit. Mark Twain says this, the more things are forbidden, the more popular they become. I think in the area of love and sex, we have this idea of the forbidden fruit, because so oftentimes when we talk about God's design as being one in which sex is to be experienced inside an intimate covenant relationship, that you feel like there's so many grasses greener realities around us, and why not? And there's just something about us as humans that the minute you say you can't, you want it. The minute you say don't, you want to do it, right? I mean, there's just something about us. Um, uh, recently, I've been going pretty fast, not like driving too fast, but I've been driving, but life has been going really fast, so I haven't been paying attention um, to my, my car gas. And I start to notice and see that all of a sudden that I'm on E and the light has come on. But then on my car, I can push a button and see exactly how many miles I have left. Some of you have this. So it says it's on E, but then I click over and I look and it says I have 40 more miles. And I'm like, okay, well, thank you very much. I have four. Why did you tell me the indicator's on that I'm on E, but I have 40 more miles? Well, then I push that. <laughs> and, and I go, and then I, here's what's happened is I forget a few times that I was on E, and I keep driving. Some of you have done this before, and then look up, and then I look at the indicator, and it says zero miles. But the car's still going. There is something in me that wants to see exactly how far I can go with zero miles. 
I don't know if it's true. I know not every, anybody else like that, just so I don't feel alone. Thank you. Okay. I am not the crazy one. I'm not the only crazy one. But there's just something in me that sees that zero miles. And I just go, I wonder how far I can make it. Because I've yet to, praise God, run out of gas. And so then I keep pushing it and pushing it. In fact, one time it was zero miles for a couple days and I hadn't driven very far. And and I'm like, you know what? I have a meeting and it's quite a bit of ways. And so I got to get gas. And so I drive to our gas station. I stop and I pull up. It's out of order. And now all of a sudden my heart's racing. I'm like, I'm going to be late to a meeting and stranded on the side of the road. Thank you very much. And so then I go like, okay, I think I can make it, you know, to the next stop. And I was thinking literally, okay, I might have to call Steve to pick me up so that I can get there. And as I'm driving, I pull up my phone just in case to get it ready and it dies. And so now I'm on zero with zero phone. And what started out as an adventure what started out was, oh, this is kind of fun, playing, see how far I go. Now I'm stressed, sweating little beads of sweat. Instead of going, oh, this is fun, I'm praying, dear Jesus, oh, Lord, let my gas tank make it to the, you know, and I literally sputtered into the gas station. And here's what I'd like to suggest. I'd like to suggest in regards to our relationship We often are doing the same exact things where we're testing the limits and kind of going, well, it's kind of fun. There's a sense of adventure and just seeing exactly how far and really unsure when you're going to run out of gas, really unsure. And for some, you've ran out of gas and you feel you walked into this room. You've you don't have a lifeline. And so you walked in and feeling completely alone and hopeless. And we're talking about this morning what I'm calling the forbidden fruit. Why that thing that's forbidden actually has inverse results in our relationships. Uh, Here's how to define the forbidden fruit. The forbidden fruit offers something you do not currently have in a way you ought not have it. It offers something you do not currently have, be it success, power, pleasure, Intimacy, excitement, adventure. It offers something you do not currently, presently possess. However, in a way, you ought not have it. Often in a shortcut. Often in a way that says you can get it immediate without going and paying the price. And we've all seen this in people. We've all seen this in businessmen who want success or businesswomen who want success and they go to whatever lengths for immediate success. And so they'll lie, they'll cheat, they'll undercut. And at the end of the day, they achieve temporary success, but it has lasting ripple effects. We see this with politicians all the time that pursue power and prominence. And yet they do it in a way He ought not have it. And what we see is though the temporary excitement of the moment or the temporary achievement inevitably tears itself down over the course of a lifetime. 
Biblically, how to define this is to say the forbidden fruit is the desire to do, to have, or to be something outside of God's design or His will. It's a desire to do, to be, or to have something outside the design of God's will. And we think back to the story of Adam and Eve and think about the fruit and think, I mean, just imagine this. You're in this garden, perfection. Everything before you is at your disposal. Everything but one thing. It's amazing how that one thing then becomes a lot more tempting. And then there is this temptation that comes along. The serpent says and shows, hey, what about the tree of knowledge of good and evil? You haven't tried that and God's kept that off limits. Isn't he holding out on you? Isn't he keeping you from good? Ultimately, the forbidden fruit for us relationally, for us in any sphere, is always the temptation to believe that God is not good and that he's holding out. And here's, here's what Eve saw. Here's what Adam saw. They saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eyes, that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Hey, I'm hungry. I got a need. I'm hungry. I can satiate. I can fulfill that hunger. I can quench that thirst. That's there. That's, hey, it's good for food. It's immediate. I need it now. It's pleasing to the eye. It wasn't an ugly fruit. It wasn't some weird, ugly, odd shape like, oh, I don't want that. It, it's alluring. It's like, man, that's beautiful. And it's crafty that way. Because it presents itself so beautiful on the outside and yet brings such sour taste on the inside. Desirable for gaining wisdom, for getting what you do not currently have. In regards to our relationships, this is how the forbidden fruit plays out. In regards to our relationships, uh, the forbidden fruit says this. It's just physical. It's just physical. It's just physical. There's no harm in it. There's, come on, come on. It's... <laughs> It's just a physical act that we're going through. It's a basic need to be fulfilled and gratified. If it's just physical, why is there so much shame for those who have been sexually abused? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that, that women are way more likely to report being mugged than being molested? If it's just physical. 30% of all women report their first sexual experience was not voluntary. 40% of girls under the age of 15, their first experience of sex was not voluntary or unwanted. CDC reports 20% of college women are forced, uh, report being forced to have sex against their will. And if it's just physical, why is there so much pain? And why is there so much shame Why, why, why is it that women struggle to even report it if it's just physical? When, when it, why, why can't you just get over it? Because it's not just physical. If it's just physical, why is it that sexually active teens are more likely to suffer from depression than those who abstain? In fact, they're three times more likely to be depressed. If it's just physical. Forbidden fruit says, well, it's, it's not hurting anyone. 
It's not, I mean, it's just not hurting anyone. This is, this is just me and my screen. This is just me and my time. This is just what I want to satiate my desires. And it's all for me. And it's not impacting anyone else around me. Well, why is it that those who say it's not hurting anyone do not consider themselves as someone? I mean, think about it. That I would say that out loud and yet not actually think about myself as a person to be hurt and that it's okay if I demean and devalue myself as long as I don't do that to anybody else. If it's not hurting anyone, why is it that those who say it's not hurting anyone do not consider the images on the screen as someone if it's not hurting anyone? The forbidden fruit says this, you deserve to be happy. I mean, don't you? I mean, don't you deserve? I mean, you deserve it. You deserve to be happy. It's your right. So you take that right. If you really deserve to be happy... Why is it that people's greatest regrets often revolve around something sexual? The very thing that offered happiness. Isn't this so funny about the forbidden fruit? The very thing that offered happiness then turns around and condemns us and becomes our greatest regret. You deserve to be happy. Why is it that those who say they deserve to be happy make choices that undermine the happiness and well-being of others. I mean, you ever think about that? Because I've heard this. I've sat with people who use, well, I deserve to be happy. And so as a result, marriage is split and families are torn apart and kids are left to pick up the pieces. And how can we say, I deserve to be happy at the expense of your well-being? At the expense of my kids' well-being. That as long as I'm happy, what a narcissistic viewpoint on life. As long as I'm happy, it doesn't matter. And at the core of it, the forbidden fruit promises what it cannot provide. We know this. Everybody knows this. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you know this. The forbidden fruit over-promises and under-delivers. Starts out sweet and then turns sour. That is the forbidden fruit. It's alluring on the front end, and then it is a snare on the back end. And it promises what it cannot provide. And you notice I left a blank there. True what? Literally, you fill in the blank. True happiness. True fulfillment. True satisfaction. True freedom and intimacy and love. True significance and life. Jesus said it this way. That the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life to the fullest. See, what I'd like to suggest is for many of us, we've bit into the forbidden fruit, tasted the consequences, and are stuck in a way of being. 
It's killing your relationships. It's stealing your joy. And it's ultimately destroying who you are. It's that whole idea of the grass is greener on the other side. And we think that the fence is somehow a barrier to keep us from fun. I know, see, I grew up in the church and then I did my own thing and then came back. And so I get it. So for those of us who are, grew up in the church, we somehow grow up thinking like out there is better. And I got news for you. It is not. The grass is not greener on the other side. I love, who was it? Kanye that said that? You just got to water the grass on your own side? Is that, isn't that Kanye? I think it is. Uh, anyway, sorry. Quote Kanye or whoever. But what if the fence is actually to keep you from harm? What if the fence is actually for your good? What if it's the design for you to experience the very best life possible? What if Jesus actually came for your good? What if he actually loves you to the point that he would give his own life for you, died on the cross for you, not so that you'd be miserable for the rest of your life, but that you would encounter the living God who loves you and who created you and that you would live to the fullness of who you were made to be? What if that's actually reality? What if that's what's really true? And what would change when you begin to embrace that reality as your reality? I want to give you a little case study in this, an area that's actually deeply personal to me, but one that I believe is widely accepted as, in our culture today as a kosher forbidden fruit. The case study is this, pornography. You don't actually have to write it down if you don't want to walk around with notes that say pornography in your notes. That's okay. <laughs> but oftentimes when we talk about pornography, Many dismiss that as, hmm, it's just physical, it's not hurting anyone, and I deserve to be happy. Thank you very much. And the fuddy-duddy church people, or religious people, or just super moral people, they say it's bad and lame, but listen, it's not doing anything bad. I'm, I'm just staring at a screen. I'm just watching some videos. Let me give you a few stats. Might shock you. Did you know the porn business trade on NASDAQ is estimated to be $20 billion per year in the U.S., $14 billion in California alone? This number moves up to $57 billion worldwide. What really is America's favorite sport? The revenue from pornography in the U.S. is more than the combined revenues of the NFL, the MLB, and the NBA combined. Where do we really turn to entertainment? The revenue from porn exceeds the combined revenues of broadcast company ABC, NBC, and CBS. According to the Kinsey Institute, 77% of America look at porn at least one time a month, 58% at least once a week, 19% at least once a day. Now, this is a bit older stat. The same story with Christians. 53% of men who have attended uh, a, a big Christian conference gathering of, for men uh, viewing porn each week. So 53% of Christian men noted that. I would argue that number is higher. 47% of Christians say that pornography is a major problem in their home. One in six women, Christian women, struggle with porn addiction. Conservative estimates... Uh, 
indicate that 60% of men, 40% of women will have extramarital affairs. We live in a society where porn is so accessible, and yet we don't think about the impact that it's having on men and women. And what's really fascinating is when you begin to do the research, it's no longer a religious thing. It's now turned into a scientific thing. In your notes, I gave you two books. They're not Christian. Uh, Hook, the new science on how casual sex is affecting our children and your brain on porn, internet pornography, and the emerging science of addiction. Uh, Both of these are written from the scientific perspective. Hooked is written by two uh, MDs, uh, and Gary Wilson, just so you know, his background is he comes from an evolutionary biologist background, and that's his framework. And so when you read it, uh, for some, I just got to say, if you pick the book up, you may be deeply offended. However, both of these address the neuroscience behind pornography and addiction. And what's fascinating about uh, today's technology and today's sciences is we can study what's happening in the brain and can study what's happening in that moment where you said it's not hurting anybody and it's just physical and watching the synapses fire and go off in your brain in the moment and you're be filled with dopamine. And so now there's a, a major movement, not Christian, not religious, but talking about porn as the new drug. For those with adolescence, it literally is reshaping the way your teen thinks and views and their ability to make decisions. Because the way it works is as you view porn or something like that releases the uh, dopamine and different, uh, what do you call those? Yeah, neurotransmitters. Thank you. There's really smart people in this room. I knew you would help me out. It literally is carving a pathway in your brain and how it'll function That's why it's so addictive. Andy Stanley in his book, uh, The New Rules for for Sex, Love, and Dating, dating talks about porn. He says that the result of pornography is this. It tells you that one body isn't enough. A real body isn't enough. Now, here's what's really fast. This isn't fascinating. But in your your brain on porn, the author is going to talk about there's new... um, epidemic um, among young 20 men that are struggling with ED because they've consumed so much porn that a real person no longer can satisfy them. And there's a whole process of helping young 20-year-olds get off porn so they can have a sexual relationship with a woman because they have just so overstimulated themselves. It's backed up by research. And eventually porn will say, your future wife or your current wife body isn't enough see porn is not a pastime it is a pathway it leads us somewhere and here's my story when I was eight years old we were in West Virginia visiting my uncle and he had one of those big houses and he had uh, you know back then this was the coolest thing ever um, cable tv it was like revolutionary you know and so he had all these channels, and my older brothers were down watching a movie. And I can, to this day, I can tell you the name of the movie. And I was sitting there, eight years old. And I was sitting watching this. It was a scary movie. It was a horror movie. 
And I remember this woman getting out of bed topless. And it was the first time I'd ever seen nudity. I can remember that image like it was yesterday. After that, hitting puberty. Then sent into a whole new realm of lust and addiction. And got hooked on pornography and I'm so thankful that I didn't grow up in today's world because, like, you had the dial-up, you know, and, I mean, it just was so painfully slow. But through my teenage years, I became so addicted to pornography. Stuck. Hooked. And the moment is satisfied, brought about a physical release... And yet then the shame and the pain and the guilt sweeped in. What started out sweet moved so sour. And the the hardest part was now I felt stuck. Honestly, I felt hopeless. That I couldn't change. And it started to become my identity that this is who I am. See, the forbidden fruit promises what it cannot provide. True freedom. It promised freedom. Promised fulfillment. Promised intimacy. And at the end of the day, it brought about isolation and pain and destruction. And I looked in the mirror and I did not like the person I saw. And I don't know where you're at this morning. And there's so many different areas that we can talk about this. And I just chose the area that is my area. But, but when we've bit of that and we feel stuck, I think for many of us, the thought is, this is just who I am. I'll never change. This is just who I am. I just always need a man to make me feel worthy. This is just who I am. I'm going to use sex to somehow satiate my need for value. This is just who I am. I can't help but keep clicking and clicking. And I'd like to present to you this morning that there is a road to freedom. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Whatever you bring into this room today, there is a road to freedom. And whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And my heart and my longing in this moment is for the church, for you, to walk in here and experience the freedom of Christ, to walk out there boldly without burdens on your shoulder anymore. And so if you got your Bibles, if you would open them up to Ephesians chapter 5, I just simply want to give you four steps, if you will, to experiencing freedom in your life. The road to freedom is a process. We live in an instant society that wants instant results. It is a process. Do not uh, miss that. But it can start today. It can start now. You can experience healing today. First step to experiencing freedom is to embrace that you are a legitimate child of God. 
So if I'm really honest, I miss this so much in my spiritual journey. And so as a result, what I tried to do is I tried to work really hard to do good, get better, and then fail. And then I just heaped guilt on my shoulders and felt really bad. And at the core of it was this question. Does God really love me? Does God really want me? Am I good enough? Am I really a legitimate child of God? I think one of the dominant attacks of the enemy in your life is to question your legitimacy as a child of God. And if he can undermine that, he can keep you stuck. First step isn't like do this. First step is embrace this. You are a legitimate child of God. (laughs) And by the way, in the family of God, there are no mistakes. There are no, uh uh-oh, kids. There are no, how did that one get in here? There's like, no, no, no. I chose you. Now, here's what I want you to notice, and we're going to read this. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord and just are light. When Paul, the apostle, talks about transformation, he has a process in which he talks about it. And it goes this way. He always starts with the indicative and then moves to the imperative. This is, I know it's a little theology for you here. But the indicative is what indicates what is true of you. It's the indicative. What is currently true of you, it's indicative of what who you are. Now, then out of of that, he moves to the imperative. Out of who you are, what's currently and presently true of you, this is how you live. We flip it around. We flip it around and go, okay, the imperative, I got to live this way to somehow be approved over here. And that's flipped upside down. And he says, no, no, no. The minute you embrace, you are light. He starts this conversation in chapter 5, right? As dearly loved children, you are dearly loved. He's going to follow up the next verse under here. Live as children of the light. You're his kid. In chapter 1, at the very beginning, he says, I've given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. Why? Because I chose you. Standing before God chosen. Like line of people, I choose you. I love you. You're forgiven. Your indicative nature, that's who you are. You're redeemed, you're adopted. Here's so cool about in Roman adoptions of the day. Did you know that a son could not, who was adopted could not be disowned? Because some of you are wrestling with that thought right now, aren't you? You walked in and you go, I, feel, I get that I'm a child, but to be honest, I don't feel like God wants me. He's going, no, 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 I chose you. You're redeemed, you're fully forgiven, fully loved. And the starting point to the road of freedom is to go, you are a legitimate child of God. This week I wrote about this because I think far too many of us live in what I call the shadow of shame. See, shame is so powerful in our lives. Shame is the thing that says, you didn't make a mistake, you are a mistake. Shame is the thing that says, you didn't, you know, just have a failure, you are a failure. You are broken. It's who you are. When I was in college, I brought my my porn addiction in with me. 
crazy part. I went to a Christian college, went to study the Bible because I had a passion for Jesus. I had a passion to like know his word and make him known. And yet I had this whole inner world that I kept silent because I was ashamed of. And so here I am in this paradox and just trying to wrestle with get free, get better. And this insidious thought came to mind. This is just who I am. I'll never change. I am a failure and God does not want me. See, shame informs how you think about you and it also informs how you think God thinks about you. That God couldn't want you, God couldn't love you, that he's down on you. I mean, it got to a really dark place one night that I was so torn up with this and my dorm room was on the 18th floor and I literally had this thought go through my head it's better that you don't live than to just be who you are and wrestled with that moment got 18 floors a window remember one night I had this dream stuck with me to this day in the dream, I came into my dorm room and the lights were off. It was dark. My laptop sitting on my desk and it was open and it was lit. The only thing that lit the room was the blue hue of the computer screen. And as I'm in the corner here and my computer's over there, I look and I see the eight-year-old version of me sitting there. You know, the version that walked in in the basement and first saw nudity, the thing that started me on a track that was so seared and shaped my mind. I saw him sitting there, right there on the chair, looking at the screen. And for the first time, I got a glimpse at how God saw me, not how I saw me. Because I saw a boy, really blonde-haired, blue-eyed little boy, scrawny, innocent, and my heart just cried out, don't look at that. Don't get stuck. You don't know the years of bondage and shame and pain that I carry around with me. Please don't. What I realized in that moment, I'm his kid. And that trumps everything. <laughs> that God wasn't down on me, that he wasn't against me, that he actually wasn't even mad at me. He hurt for me. He wanted the best for me. That he longed to bring healing and wholeness to the deep, broken places of my life. The first step to the road of freedom is the indicative. Do not pass the indicative. You are a legitimate child of God. Once you were in darkness, that's true. But when you put your faith in Christ, you are now, you are now light. And now, after that, out of that, in light of this, this is now the next steps to take. The imperative. Pursue what pleases God. Remember how he started it and quoted earlier? As dearly loved children, be imitators of God. Pursue what pleases God. He goes on to say, live as children of light. For the fruit or the result of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
Find out what pleases the Lord. Pursue what pleases God. Make it your aim. Make it your ambition. Make it the direction of your life. God, I want to figure out what pleases you instead of just always wrestling with what pleases me. I guarantee you, you'll be more happy and satisfied and fulfilled. When you go, God, I want to make the aim and direction of my life. What pleases you? Well, how do I know what pleases you? Interesting. He said, the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. What do you just start asking this? Is it good? Is it right? Is it true? Is it good? Is it right? Is it true? I'm going to pursue what pleases you. And so I'm going to start asking, is it good? Is it right? Is it true? I'm going to pursue what pleases you. And I got to be honest, our self-talk, the things that are going on inside our own heads apply the same thing. Is it good? Is it right? Is it true? So oftentimes we're telling ourselves lies. My buddy Kevin Queen, he had this quote on, this, uh, on Twitter the other day. He said, if anybody else talked to you the way you talked to you, you would file a restraining order against them. Start telling yourself the truth. Is it good? Is it right? Is it true? One of the ways I do this, and so I'm just going to give you like real practical how I do this. So... I have a moleskin. I, I ride in here every morning. But in the back, I have this little patch. And then I have a bunch of three-by-five cards. Because here's what I find out, uh, find in myself, that I have to recalibrate my mind around what's good and what's right and what's true. If I'm going to pursue what pleases him, I just got to constantly recalibrate or renew my mind around that. And I'll just give you one area that I do this in. Because I got a bunch of them. You can see here. But in my marriage... So in my marriage, and hey, married guys, you might want to think about doing this. I have Ephesians 5, through 39, because I know this is what pleases God and how I'm going to be a man and a husband to my wife. So husbands, Ryan, love your wife, Jenny. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to be, make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain and wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It goes on. And you can see it goes on. I read that every morning. And then I got on the backside. You know what I got on the backside? I got two questions and a prayer. What's important to Jenny today? You know, my modus operandi oftentimes is what's important to me. When I get home from work, what's important to me? I just got to recalibrate. Is it right? Is it true? Is it good? What's important to Jenny today? Second question. How can I be present to her in a way that reflects Jesus' love? Pursue what pleases God. It will transform your relationships. First, road to freedom. You're a legitimate child of God. Second, pursue what pleases God. Third, get rid of anything getting in the way. Paul goes on to say, have nothing to do with fruitless or barren or unproductive deeds of darkness but rather expose them. We're going to talk about that in just a second. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. It says have nothing. Literally, nada. Zilch. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds. Now note it doesn't say fruitless people. In like Christian circles, we're really good at judging other people and creating holy huddles that are actually very dysfunctional because we fake it in the church. Because we don't actually bring the real us to the table. 
And we're good about telling everyone else what they should do instead of giving ourselves the same advice. It says, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds. Get rid of anything that's getting in the way. One of my other verses in here is Hebrews 12, where it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off anything and everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. It's like, just throw it off. And I got to be honest, for some in this room, this is one of the sticking points for you in your process of experiencing freedom is you're not willing to do anything or get rid of anything of what's getting in the way. There's certain TV shows you know you need to get rid of, certain movies you know you need to not watch. There's certain activities on your phone you know you need to stop and you're not willing to do it. And then you're crying to God, wondering why he's not answering your prayer. And he's going, no, 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 I did. Get rid of anything that gets in the way. And then let's talk. You're already my kid. Pursue what pleases me. Get rid of anything. On my phone, I don't have the internet. That's a smartphone that's not very smart. Why? My story. You know my story. Setting up for marriage. By the way, single guys... Your struggle doesn't change and solve the minute you get married. Start dealing with it now. <laughs> but here's what I learned. I'm going to keep myself accountable to the people that I feel uh, that I can't let down. And so I've always had two people, my boss and my wife. Both bosses. Um. <laughs> so there's... A, Internet accountability software on our computers. On my phone. I can't download an app without taking it to Jenny and going, hey, I, I got to update right now because I can't get onto our bank stuff on my thing. Hey, could you unlock this so I can do this? Okay, thank you very much. Hey, hey, the Cubs won yesterday. I lived in Chicago. Now that the Giants are out, I'm rooting for the Cubs. If I wanted to know the Cubs were winning and I wasn't at the game, I'd have to go, Glenn, could you look up on your phone? Who's winning? Awkward. Why? Because here's what I know. That former life, I don't ever want to go back to. Ever. I don't want to ever experience that pain again. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes and cut it off and make sure. Jesus would say it this way. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your hands cause you to stumble, cut it off. Obviously, he's using hyperbole, but some of us aren't taking them seriously enough. And I talk to guys that are struggling. I said, great, hand me your phone. Well, what are you going to do? And then I tell them, well, you, we're going to take these apps off. You're not going to be able to be on the internet. Well, what about, yeah, it's inconvenient. You're right. It is inconvenient. You know, our Netflix account, our Amazon account, it's set. It's got the parental ratings. All, all our stuff's got the parental ratings. My wife's got the passcodes on all that. We can't watch any movie that's above PG-13. I'm not saying that you need to do this. I'm just saying what I need to do. But what would it look like to get rid of anything getting in the way of you pursuing what pleases God? 
Because that thing getting you, that's getting in the way is keeping you from freedom and fulfillment and satisfaction and ultimate joy. Finally, come out of hiding to experience healing. Secrets keep you stuck and give shame its power. The Apostle Paul concludes this way, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Okay, so I expose this, I bring it out and it shines and it hurts and it's painful, but it's in that moment that God transforms that. My story isn't a story of defeat anymore. It's a story of Jesus' victory in my life. And I stand as a testimony of his grace and now it is a light. Where before, it was a shame. That's why it's said, and then he quotes what many believe is an ancient song or hymn of the church, one that was declared over those who would go into the waters of baptism. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. That word shine is literally the word for dawn. Like wake up from the darkness. It's the picture of, I don't know if you spent a cold, dark night camping where you couldn't wait for the sun to rise and you froze and you're just hoping the sun will come and you're not really sure when it's coming, but when the first rays come over, you remember this, some of you experienced this, and and it hits your face and the life breathes back into you. He says, this is that moment. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Let the sun shine on you. Come out of hiding to experience healing. This is a moment, by the way, that could be a life-changing moment for you to experience healing and wholeness to step from the shadow of shame into the son of the one he loves and to experience wholeness and grace. And I dream of a church where we stop showing up and playing games and where we feel like we got to put on our best self, but we come as we are broken and in a community and a family of love and we go, okay, we're in it together where we can be real with one another where we can be honest and where we can go, this is what's going on. And then you experience his grace, his love, and the tangible hands of his people. So would you stand with me? We're going to continue in worship. And here's what I'm going to invite you to do. I'm going to invite the prayer team to just hang out in this corner over here. And I believe this is a powerful moment for some who walked in heavy, can walk out light, who walked in hopeless, walk out with hope, who walked in feeling dead, walk out feeling alive. But it requires coming out of hiding. 
And maybe you've like me, your story is much like mine. You had some sort of porn addiction and you've never shared it or you've slipped back and you're stuck. Maybe it's depression and you've just kept that to yourself. If there's anything in your life where you've been suffering silently, gritting your teeth, trying to make it, come out of hiding. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead and let Christ shine in you. In this moment, I encourage you, you just get out of your seat and you walk over there and it doesn't, you just share what's on your heart and you get prayed for and you will experience the tangible hands and healing.